So Haggai 2, beginning in verse 10. On the 24th day of the ninth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Ask the priests about the law. If someone carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches with his fold bread or stew or wine or oil or any kind of food, does it become holy? The priests answered and said, No. Then Haggai said, If someone who is unclean by contact with a dead body touches any of these, does it become unclean? The priests answered and said, It does become unclean. Then Haggai answered and said, So is it with these people, this people, and with this nation before me, declares the Lord. And so with every work of their hands, and what they offer there is unclean. Now then, consider from this day onward. Before stone was placed upon stone in the temple of the Lord, how did you fare? When one came to a heap of twenty measures, there were but ten. When one came to the wine vat to draw fifty measures, there were but twenty. I struck you in all the products of your toil with blight and with mildew and with hail, yet you did not turn to me, declares the Lord. Consider from this day onward, from the twenty-fourth day of the ninth month, since the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, consider, is the seed yet in the barn? Indeed, the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, the olive tree have yielded nothing. But from this day on, I will bless you. The word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai on the 24th day of the month. Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I am about to shake the heavens and the earth and to overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I am about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the nations and overthrow the chariots and their riders, and the horses and their riders shall go down, every one by the sword of his brother. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. Let's pray that prayer that we pray. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. It's good to be back with you all. We have been on a long detour from LVP and from Allentown, thanks to Reverend Green and Jonathan for filling in these last couple of weeks. Uh, I haven't preached. This is like the in like four weeks or something like that. I'm not sure if I remember how. We're going to find out together. Um, Before we went away, we had begun a a, a detour in our sermon series as well. Uh, A few months back, we started in Ezra, uh, and we've been talking about restoration, uh, as it is symbolized in the rebuilding of the temple, of course, but also the rebuilding of the nation of Israel. And before I went away, we had hit pause in that series in Ezra and began this detour in Haggai, and my goal is to finish that up here. Now, Haggai, of course, got honorable mention in Ezra 5, and that's why we made this detour. He's one of the prophets God sent to give his people a shake, to give them a wake-up call. And Haggai made very clear why that was necessary. He said in chapter 1 that that God's people had become complacent. They had hit a a roadblock with the governments. It was not through any fault of their own. Uh, They had been lied about in this kind of thing. Uh, But uh, they had let their disappointment become an excuse for apathy. And uh, they weren't even trying anymore to work on the temple. Uh, And that doesn't mean they were sitting still, goodness no. Uh, They were taking advantage of the downtime to build their own little empires, is what Haggai accuses them of. Uh, And you may remember that Haggai sort of smacked them upside the head in chapter 1 for being very busy building nice paneled homes for themselves while the temple 
fell back into ruins. And uh, so for years, several years now, the Jewish leaders and God's people had become sort of fat and self-centered, and they were all very busy, Haggai says, but they were busy looking out for number one, meaning themselves. Uh, But Haggai records that they did listen to the words of the prophet. Uh, They started building again, and once they put their hands to the work uh, for God again, he came back a month later and tells Haggai, like, look, this lopsided pile of rubble that you've been working on, it's going to get better. It's not going to stay this bad. He he promised that the glory of the latter days for the temple would be better than the glory days of the former. And that was quite a promise because many of these older folks, they remembered uh, the glory days. They had been, you know, young children and had seen Solomon's temple. And, you know, Solomon, I mean, he was the wealthiest Israelite king, right? He had built a temple of such great magnificence that foreign leaders and dignitaries came from distant lands simply to kind of admire it and take it in. And, uh, you know, we know, we, we tend to admire ancient buildings. We know about this because we all frequently complain, I think, that uh, they don't build things like they used to. I mean, how often do we say that? New construction tends to be weird and take shortcuts. And, that you know, you look at them, it's like, well, it looks nice, but it's not built to last, uh, either physically or stylistically often. We were uh, in Cape May last week. It's the only town in New Jersey I actually like. And... Um, the house we stayed in was, was built in 1870, and uh, this is the kind of place that we can afford to stay if we're going to go down there. And it, it, walking through the hallways, you felt like you were on a ship, kind of going this way and that. You know, um, the, the floor sagged in multiple places. And when you sat on the toilet on the first floor, it felt like it was on the porch there, kind of enclosed. And it felt like the whole porch was going to fall off into the yard. It just kind of had that feel to it. And, and yet, you know, my takeaway from it is like it was still it was a beautiful house, <laughs> you know. Um, it, it had that Victorian charm that so much of that town has. You know, it's littered with these beautiful old homes, gas street lamps, brick walkways, and this kind of thing. And, and we constantly say, "Boy, they just don't build them like they used to. Not, they don't build it like this anymore. If this all burned down, it would be lost forever. They'd never be able to replicate it." And, and that's how God's people, especially the older ones here, would, would have felt about this temple. Like you're never going to match what Solomon built. We've seen this thing at its peak. Uh, it's like asking you to recreate the Sistine Chapel. It just can't be done. You can't do that. It doesn't matter how much money you throw at it. But God said no. In fact, this temple will be even better. It's going to be even more glorious. God has promised the impossible. He has a way of doing that. Uh, So he tells Haggai, this new temple, this rickety thing you're throwing together, it's going to be more glorious than Solomon's temple ever was. Great promise. He's telling his people the work is worthwhile, and that's always good to know. Uh, we've all experienced, I think, working on something that seems futile, and you can ask yourself, why do I even bother? We want to know that our work matters. We want to know that it makes a difference, and we also would like to think that it's going to outlast us at least a little bit. Um, and so when it comes to the temple, God assures them, yes, the work matters. So that's where we left off. And now we're getting to the conclusion of Haggai, this glorious climax to these proclamations. And this is two months after the last message. Two months they've been working at things. Uh, and, and, you know, at one point God had come back and told them, like, yeah, all right, that's going to be glorious and everything like that. But now he's coming to bring them sort of the final word. This is, this is the parting shot. This is what God wants them to walk away most remembering of anything he has to say through the prophet Haggai. And he's going to tell them more than just about the building. These messages focus on the builders. So I want to look again at these first handful of verses, 10 to 13 again. It says, on the 24th day, the ninth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet. Thus says the Lord of hosts, 
Ask the priests about the law. If someone carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches with his fold bread or stew or wine or oil or any kind of food, does it become holy? The priests answered and said, no. Then Haggai said, if someone who is unclean by contact with a dead body touches any of these, does it become unclean? The priests answered and said, it does become unclean. Okay. So God opens this message with a sort of parable uh, or an analogy, if you like, an illustration. Uh, he, he sends Haggai to the priests to ask them two questions about holy versus unholy things, clean versus unclean things, and, and it's going to provide an illustration of his larger point that we're going to see. And the first question is about holy food, meaning food that was designated to be, you know, for sacrifice, right? And, and he specifically asks about holy meat because meat is the most important holy food group, as we all know. But the question is kind of weird. God, through Haggai, he says, you know, like, hypothetically, let's say someone puts holy meat in his pocket. The illustration's already kind of weird and gross, right? And if, if your kids have ever put food of any kind in their pocket and then sent it through the wash, then you are having vivid flashbacks right now thinking of the, this thing. You know, it's like it's, there's this horrifying scene in Napoleon Dynamite where he puts the, the tater tots, he's going to save them for later, and he puts them in that zipper pocket of his, of his like, sweatpants like to eat in class later. It's like, could there be anything more disgusting than that? It's like, oh, the grease spots... But the meat in the pocket isn't the primary problem. This is just part of the setup in, in God's hypothetical. He gives him the, the next part. He says, all right, let, let's just say this guy with the holy meat in his pocket walks through the kitchen and his sleeve brushes all the food on the counter, including the stove, right? You know, like the bread, the stew, the oil, the wine, the, the butter, the coffee pot, those bananas that are turning brown, like all of it, right? And the priests at this point are like, uh, where is this going? What is this guy talking about? And Haggai says, like, let's just say it happened. You know, leaving aside what this man's wife would say about doing the laundry tomorrow, does all the food on the counter become holy just because his sleeve brushed by it? And the priests are like, uh, no. And they probably try to walk away at this point as quickly as they can. But before they can get away from Haggai, he asks a follow-up question. He's like Columbo. Just one more question, guys. Just for funsies, another hypothetical for you. Uh, let's say you see a dead guy. And again, just for funsies, you go and touch him. And it's all icky and gross, and now you are legally unclean, right? And not just legally, it's actually kind of like literally disgusting, right? And now the priests are like really looking for the exits, right? And yet Haggai continues, he says, and let's say hypothetically, you, you go home and proceed to make your wife just about flip by touching everything on the kitchen counter again. And the priests are like, why is this guy talking to us? And, and, and then he, he, he concludes it with the question. He says, you know, does all the stuff on the counter become unclean? And the priests are relieved this thing is over and, and the answer is easy. Like, of course it's unclean. You don't get to touch whatever you want and then walk into the kitchen like nothing happened. That doesn't even work in my house. And the law is very clear about this. And common sense would tell you the same. I imagine, as a child, and most of us had this experience, of trying to get away with this in front of your mom. Like, if your kids have ever come in, you know, from playing in the dirt and then they dare to, like, sit down for dinner and made no stop in the lavatory to wash up, right? And maybe they were out there collecting bugs or bird feathers. Uh, you know, my kids did that. I used to do that, too. 
Uh, or uh, we've had the situation of them burying the dead mouse that they found in the garage. These are real examples. I'll conceal names to protect the innocent. But you better believe that your hands are no longer trusted by your mother at this point or by me. Why? Because you are unclean. You might as well shout it like the lepers of the ancient world. Do not touch me. Unclean, unclean, you know. You may not touch me. You may not touch your food. You don't even, I don't really want you touching the doorknob at this point. Like, ideally, what I want you to do is get help. Somebody needs to go in and turn the water on for you so you don't touch the spigot either and apply the soap from a distance above, right? Because you are not fit to touch anything. Now, if that's true in my house... I assume this was even more true for the priests of Israel. So these questions weren't exactly head scratchers, right? These are supposed to be obvious answers to these questions. And that's when God takes that obvious answer and through Haggai delivers another gut punch in verse 14. Haggai answered and said, So is it with this people and with this nation before me, declares the Lord. And so with every work of their hands. And what they offer there is unclean. Ouch. God uses these two illustrations, but they make the same point, that the work of their hands and the worship even that they offer has absolutely no power in itself. If your offering is holy, it has no power to make anything else, including you, holy. And if, yet if you are unclean, You can only make everything else you touch unclean. In other words, your uncleanness is contagious, and your best offering is powerless to make you holy. So you can't make things holy by mere contact, and if you're clean, you don't make things holy. You have no Midas touch. On the other hand, if you were unclean, it spreads. You have no power to make things holy, but you have plenty of power to make things unholy. That's your superpower. Congratulations. And what this means is that if we are unclean, then the work we do is by default unclean. Nothing we can do is good enough. This is why he goes after not just the worship that they do, but the work that they've been doing. Unclean people cannot offer acceptable worship. If you are unclean, nothing you can do will bear good fruit. And what God is saying is that the work his people are doing, the rebuilding and the worshiping, none of it has any power to cleanse them. Their best offerings are unclean and unworthy. Now that doesn't sound like the most uplifting message, does it? There's a a depressing moment in Charlie Brown's Christmas near the very end. Uh, Charlie Brown's feeling very discouraged uh, and he was feeling encouraged, actually, briefly. For It's the only time in the film where he feels a little bit encouraged. He decides he's going to go home and he's going to decorate that crummy tree of his, right? And, and he puts one ornament on there, and it falls over immediately. And what does he say in his despair? Everything I touch gets ruined. And it's a funny line, but like for my money, that's actually a much more moving scene to me than when Linus tells the Christmas story, because like I can relate to that. If I am unclean, then everything I touch gets ruined. And I can do nothing to fix that. So this would be a very disheartening message. But God is not calling his people to be discouraged. After all, the heading of this section in your Bibles uh, says something to the effect of uh, blessings for a defiled people. Now that's good news, you would think, right? Uh, 
But God tells his people what to set their minds on first. And he echoes this theme from earlier in the book. He talks about considering your ways. He says, consider where you started. And that way you can rejoice about where you're going. I want to look at the rest of the paragraph here, beginning in verse 15. Uh, Now then, consider from this day onward. Before stone was placed upon stone in the temple of the Lord, how did you fare? When one came to a heap of 20 measures, there were but 10. When one came to the wine vat to draw 50 measures, there were but 20. I struck you and all the products of your toil with blight and with mildew and with hail. Yet you did not turn to me, declares the Lord. Consider from this day onward. From the 24th day of the ninth month, since the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, consider, is the seed yet in the barn? Indeed, the vine, the fig, the pomegranate, the olive tree have yielded nothing, but from this day on, I will bless you. The one positive, beautiful promise in this section shows up in the last sentence. But I think you'll not appreciate God's blessings until you know how much you don't deserve them. And so God calls on his people to remember where they were. When you weren't working on the temple and on my house, your labor was futile. I saw to it. You were working for yourselves. You were never satisfied. And God, in his mercy, intentionally frustrated them so that they would turn to him, and yet they resisted him until even their worship became futile. And I think that has application for us. It's worth thinking about that, you know, when we are not truly pursuing the kingdom of God, uh, we will not only find life and work frustrating, even our worship becomes frustrating and empty. And I think it's possible to go through the motions of worship, which they were surely doing, uh, but for your heart to be far from God. Maybe some of you have had Sundays like that. Maybe, maybe many Sundays like that. And I think it's possible that the offerings we leave can be unclean. And that's a worthwhile warning for us even now. But that's not where God leaves his people. He says, there's, there's two commands in here. He says twice to consider from now on. Uh, that's verses 15 and 18. And in Hebrew, it's literally, it means to set it to your heart, is what it says in Hebrew. So he's talking about a change in mindset, thinking differently. Uh, Paul would call it renewing your mind. God says to remember where you came from, but also to remember his words that from this day on, I will bless you. And the blessing, that means, extends to more than just the building. It's more than just a future that they will not live to see. The blessing begins now, today. And obeying God and living for him in the present is not without its reward. And the only reason, I think, ultimately, that he's saying to remember your failures is to praise God for redeeming you from them. Your fruitless, meaningless, frustrating years will be redeemed starting today. And that's a picture of the gospel, isn't it? There's nothing in this passage that explains how God's people earned this promise in the last sentence. He doesn't say, because of the brilliant work that you are doing, I will bless you. He doesn't call them to earn the blessing. Instead, he reminds them of their lousy track record. That's what he spends most of the paragraph on and then announces suddenly at the end, starting today, I will bless you. 
The blessing, again, is not just that the temple project will be blessed. The builders themselves will be blessed as they build. And the blessing is not conditional on their work. There's nothing in the paragraph that would lead you to predict the final sentence. You guys are unclean. Your track record sucks, but I will bless you. You're like a grubby kid who's been playing with some rabies-infested dead mouse, and yet I will bless you. Why? Because I am pleased to do so, because such is the nature of God's grace. Well, you could ask at that point, like, well, what does that blessing look like exactly? And maybe the priests and the people are asking the same question. I think that's why God came back a second time to Haggai in the same day, uh, maybe later in the afternoon, with one final message. <laughs> it says, the word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai on the 24th day of the month. Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I am about to shake the heavens and the earth and to overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I am about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the nations and overthrow the chariots and their riders, and the horses and their riders shall go down, every one by the sword of his brother. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. Well, God makes a promise here to Zerubbabel that's rather incredible, and it connects to the previous paragraph, really. Uh, it is a little strange, because Zerubbabel would not live to see the things God is talking about here in a literal way. God, God says that he will shake the heavens and the earth, that he will overthrow nations, and that Israel's enemies will essentially pick each other off until there are no enemies left standing. But even more wondrous is that he tells Zerubbabel that he will make him like a signet ring. Now, a signet ring is kind of a, an old-fashioned idea. Uh, maybe some of you youngsters don't know what that means, but royalty in the ancient world, uh, and not just royalty, but primarily it kind of shows up in that, that kind of context, but royalty it, it would, would seal their letters and even military commands with wax. They would drip wax on there to seal the, the document, and uh, they would wear a distinctive ring that they would press into the wax uh, and when you saw the king's logo in the wax, you knew that it was authentic, that it was really from him because nobody else had that ring. Uh, it has the king's authority as, as sure as if he was standing there. That makes this a pretty important piece of jewelry. Uh, if I were a king, I'd be reluctant to re misplace such a thing. I, I wouldn't eagerly give it away. I mean, like, I don't even take this wedding ring off because I'm afraid to lose it, right? We watched Rear Window recently, and one of my favorite lines is when they, they find the missing woman's wedding ring, and uh, Jimmy Stewart asks his nurse if she ever takes her ring off. She says, the only way to take this thing off will be to cut off my finger. It's a great moment. Um, I imagine a king would be at least as protective of his signet ring, right? Because it carries not only sentimental value, but actual power. A, a signet ring, in that sense, it's, it's almost more like, uh, think of it like the, the nuclear football in America, right? Like the codes that the president has, the, that the Secret Service carries around a briefcase with a button that can launch nuclear weapons, right? And in the wrong hand, someone could do something rather terrible with that briefcase, right? The same is true of a signet ring. Like, it enables you to speak for and represent the power there, right? You know, it, it represents the full faith and credit of the government. So when, for instance, Pharaoh gives his signet ring to Joseph in Genesis 41, after Joseph interprets his dream, like, that's a remarkable vote of confidence. And God tells Zerubbabel that he will be a signet ring in that day when he shakes the earth. God's going to do big stuff, 
mighty deeds. He's going to shake the nations, the heavens, and the earth, and Zerubbabel will not receive a signet ring. He'll become a signet ring. Why? Simply because God chose him. Again, praise God for his electing grace. Remember, this book began in Haggai 1.1 with God rebuking Zerubbabel first because if God's people were not doing right, and they were not, God has a tendency to blame the leadership. And Zerubbabel is the political leader of God's people. He's the closest thing they have to a king, and he's been failing in his leadership role. He's abdicated the leadership role by allowing the people to become lazy and self-centered and to focus on their own comforts at the expense of the kingdom. He's not the only sinner in the room, but the buck stops with him. And yet God says, I will make you a signet ring. You will bear my mark, my authority, my full faith and credit when I shake the earth. And the blessing will look like safety and security and peace on all sides. No more enemies, no more fear, no more stress, no more worry. The gospel promise in Haggai is that God will bless his people, not because of their faithfulness, but because of his. His faithfulness to what he says in Ezra 1.1, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. Now again, to be fair, not all of this came to fruition in any obvious way in Zerubbabel's lifetime. Which makes you wonder a little bit. You know, Zerubbabel never wore the crown. He remained a governor in the service of a Persian king. Uh, this passage was not fulfilled completely or literally in his lifetime. The, the temple eventually gets built, but the enemy nations were not wiped out. They're still here. Many nations still stand against Christ and his kingdom, right? Including increasingly our own at times. So one might be tempted to glaze over this passage and to ignore it. Uh, probably most of us do. I mean, honestly, how many of you would actually have a red Haggai before this summer anyway, right? And there's a reason you don't know many Zerubbabels. It's not a popular baby name. Um, you know, it's one thing to use Jemima, but Zerubbabel, it's another matter entirely. Um, we don't typically think of Zerubbabel in our list of like heroes of the Old Testament. He's, he's kind of obscure to us. So what does this promise mean for us? Well, it, it's when you start reflecting on the very striking fact that Zerubbabel's name reappears in both Matthew and Luke's gospel in the genealogies because he is, in fact, a direct ancestor of our Lord. Zerubbabel doesn't live to see these things fulfilled completely in his earthly lifetime, but one of his sons will fulfill it. And in a very real sense, the, the sort of the, you could say in Old Testament language, that the, the seed of the true signet ring bearing the complete authority of the father was within Zerubbabel's loins. Let's put it that way. The genetic makeup is all there. So this promise to Zerubbabel is meant to point us to Christ, which is the meaning of all scripture. And when God says that he's going to shake the heavens and the earth, it's hard not to think about Jesus. When, when you think of the heavens and the earth shaking, it's kind of hard not to be reminded of the dreadful moment when Jesus gives up his spirit on Calvary, when the earth shakes and the rock literally just crack and the heavens go dark, right? And the author of Hebrews refers to this shaking in Hebrews 12. He says this, See that you do not refuse him who is speaking, that's Christ, for if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised yet once more, 
I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. That's a Haggai reference. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. God is talking here in Haggai, when he talks about the shaking, he's talking about the end of all things. He's pointing to the end, to a glorious future for all of his people when all of his enemies are destroyed. Now we know that we have no greater enemy than sin. But Jesus, the son of Zerubbabel, if you like, who bore the full authority of the Father, destroyed sin's power on the cross, and one day he's going to wipe it out entirely, and he's going to shake the heavens and the earth one final time. But his people will stand strong within the walls of the kingdom that cannot be shaken. So the promise does mean something for us because it points forward to glory, and Zerubbabel will see that day along with us. That's the promise. Life doesn't end at death, right? And that promise applies to us who are chosen in Christ. Any promise to Zerubbabel really applies to Christ, and in Christ, all the promises are ours as well. Calvin, John Calvin, summarizes much of his uh, short little commentary on Haggai in the following way. He says, it is necessary that this should be applied to Christ when he reconciled men to God and to angels, when he conquered the devil and restored life to the dead, when he shone forth with his own righteousness, then indeed God shook the heaven and the earth and he still shakes them at this day when the gospel is preached. We now perceive the prophet's designs and we also perceive the application of his doctrine. For whatever impediments and difficulties come in our way, calculated to drive us to despair, when we think of the restoration of the church, this prophecy ought to come to our minds, which shows that it is in God's power and that it is his purpose to overturn all the kingdoms of the earth, to break chariots in pieces, to cast down and lay prostrate all riders, rather than to allow them to prevent the restoration of his church. That's good stuff. That's the promise to the church. And beloved, we are a church in need of restoration. Amen. And therefore, let Haggai be an encouragement to us. The gospel, according to Haggai, is that in spite of your past, God is no longer out to get you. You are no longer his enemies. And he has determined to bless his people to the very end and to destroy our enemies, even sin and death, to shake the heavens and the earth, and yet to spare us, all in the name of restoring his church, not because of how great we are, but simply because he chose us. God will bless his people for the simple reason that he chooses to. It is pure grace, unmerited favor. So in the end, the glorious future is not about a building but God's people and what he is doing in us and for us. The promise is just as glorious now as it was in Haggai's day. So set these things to your heart and be encouraged as God's people were in days of old. Let's pray. Gracious God and Father, Lord, we thank you for sending your prophets 
to give us a shake, to wake us up, to make us aware of our sin, Lord, but ultimately to point us back to you and to point us forward to Christ. We thank you for this little book of Haggai and for the riches that we have been mining out of it, Lord. Not even completely. We could have done more. But Lord, we are thankful for the reminder, Lord, not to be so preoccupied with our own little kingdoms, Lord, but to set our, our hands to the, to the work of your kingdom, Lord, to offer acceptable worship, Lord, not that we can do so on our own. We are not clean in and of ourselves, but we are in Christ. So teach us to worship, teach us to work for your kingdom, Lord. And focus, on, focus us on the future glory, Lord, this wonderful promise that we are given, that you will one day shake the heavens, Lord, but we belong to a kingdom that can't be shaken. We thank you for that, Lord. Encourage us this week and in the coming months with this message. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Please stand and join us in singing the doxology. Praise God from whom all blessings.